Hello, I'm Coach Patel and I'm joined by my co-host Jamie Bettridge. We would like to welcome you to the Football in Business podcast, where we will discuss all things football and business. On this podcast, we'll delve into the minds of various individuals who have been involved in football and get an insight on the game that we'd all love to know. We will hear some brilliant stories and have some great laughs as we speak to individuals from the football world. Added to this, we will get an insightful view into the mind of someone who is a part of the game and understand how easy it is for them to transfer their core skills into business life whilst finding out about business ventures they are a part of. We've got some great guests lined up which can hopefully give us all a different view of the game and where life is taking them after the game. Please hit like, share and subscribe and if you know anyone who would be suitable for the show, please put them in touch. Welcome back to the Football and Business Podcast. For today's episode, our guest has made over 450 appearances in British football and scored 162 goals for his career. It's Marlon yeah, King. Delighted to have you, you, Marlon. How are you today? Yeah, I'm all good, mate. Um, so, Marlon, let's uh, start right at the beginning. Tell us how you got into football. Um, basically, look, um, my background is, 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 is a football background in terms of, you know, I grew up in Peckham in South London. Um, I don't know if you've heard of the place, maybe through, you know, Only Fools and Horses um, is probably the best kind of repre- representation of, of where I'm from. But it was a lot different growing up and um, everyone on the estate, everyone around um, Rio Ferdinand's not too far, didn't live too far away from me and on, on the, a different estate. And football was all we knew. We didn't have social media. We didn't have... Um, basketball um it was just it was purely a football kind of you know uh place so from a young age of six or seven started off playing in the local um community centers and just from the estate just whatever we could get our hands on um in terms of whether the goals were your coats or there was coca-cola cans it was football was what we all we had really yeah brilliant so you grew up sort of playing proper you know street football uh, and did you learn a lot from that kind of game we were speaking to Lamana Luar Luar the other day and his, his was similar sort of playing uh, street football and he learned that he fell in love with football through skills rather than the, yeah, the normal academy um, route you get to express yourself a lot more and, and, until you get into more of the um, professional setup in terms of being coached so it's just expressing yourself it's just you know a lot of us don't come from privileged privileged backgrounds so you get to express yourself and, and, and get to forget about any sort of um in terms of you know uh, you just get to lose yourself in football and it, it goes i think it will i think it goes right around um the whole world i mean for, for, for people in poverty or for people that are left, less privileged, you get to express yourself and, and lose yourself in, in the game of what, what you love. And mine was football. No, that, that's great to hear. So then we just want to fast forward to 2003 for you, Marlon. Uh, when you moved from Gillingham to Nottingham Forest for 950k, back then a lot of money, um, you go and join such a big club with a rich history. Tell us about how it felt for you when Forest came came in for you when you first well, heard to be honest like there. it was i was still i guess it was a pro and a, and a con for me because i was still adjusting to, to understanding what was happening to me because even when i went from barnet to gillingham i think i went for 
250,000. I was only a, a young kid then and um, they had just been promoted to the to the championship. I still was surrounding myself with kind of the same circle I grew up with and I still had that kind of estate mentality in terms of not knowing how to separate the two and kind of take myself away from the environment that I grew up in. So when I went to Forest, it was, it was, it, it kind of took me back a bit because Forest is a big club with a rich history and I was doing well at Gillingham, but I was, I still had my home comforts and I still had my people around me. So when I was sent to, to Forest and um, I moved abroad, it was, you know, it was a new environment. It was a different expectation and, you know, I felt comfort in still trying to, to go back to where I was from and it was, it wasn't a good thing for me. But, I mean, Forest is one of the clubs that, I, you know, the city, I, I love the city and it's got a massive fan base and I wish I got to express myself a bit more there. But as I said, it was kind of took me back because as I said, I I didn't know what was, was happening in my career and it was, you know, it was like it was like another move, but I just wanted to play football. And when I wasn't playing football, that's when I was at my most um, vulnerable, should I say? Yeah, I mean, when you were at uh, Nottingham Forest uh, during that time, you actually got loaned out to Leeds, um, which, is, from what we from what we know, it didn't end up being the, um, the you know the most successful time in your career for you there. Did you ever start to get any self doubt as a player? Because I mean, I play a very low standard. Uh, and I find after a, a, quite a few bad games, you then start to uh, not want the ball as much and sort of get in your own head. Maybe did you ever get that as a player? Um, not, not. It wasn't. You know what? It, it, it was a. I think you're right in saying that, um, Jamie. But in terms of when I went to Forest, it um, it was um, it was a situation where is I wanted to prove myself, but sometimes you know as you know, even when Didier Drogba went to Chelsea at the beginning, he didn't set the world alight. You know, and a lot of people doubted him, came for a lot of money, and he you know, he turned out his career turned out for what, what I can say is quite all right. You know, he turned out to be a legend, and you know, he's one of the players that I look up to. But when I went to Forest um, and I got loaned out to Leeds, I went to Leeds. I, I had a chip on my shoulder, and I wanted to prove myself at Leeds, but I didn't quite get the chance because. Kevin Blackwell thought it was the best position for me to play on the right wing when he played me. And obviously, I mean, Aaron Lennon was on the bench in that time and his career didn't turn out too bad. So it's football can be um, very unforgiving and very opinionated, but I never got deterred in terms of self-belief. I always knew there was another, yeah. with football, there's always another game to bounce back. And especially in the championship, what I enjoyed is, you had the Saturday and then you had the Tuesday. So if you didn't have the best games on the Saturday, you were lucky enough for the gaffer to, to pick you on the Tuesday. You had a chance to resurrect yourself because um, it's such a fast-paced, physical league. And for me, I've got my experience of when I didn't do well at Forest or when I went to Leeds and it didn't, it didn't pan out. You know, as I said, the, the Watford story came next and the rest was kind of history. So... It doesn't make you a, a bad player. You don't become a bad player overnight. Sometimes you get the best players in the world who don't work out for them. I mean, look at Coutinho. He goes from Liverpool, world beat. He goes to Barcelona. Then he goes to Bayern Munich. And he's still trying to find his feet. It's just 
you know, it's a, it's a very opinionated game. It's the yeah. same as right as a, a lower level player. You get one player. I think James Bardi when he first signed for for Leicester, he wasn't really getting the look in, and then he got his break, and you know, he's a legend at Leicester. You know, they, so it never deterred me. It was always when my back was against the wall. That's when I found the most energy. You always had the right mentality. Yeah, you, you briefly you briefly touched on the Watford days. Then obviously the move to Watford comes. You go on loan, you score twelve and twenty one. Um, what and then you secure the permanent move. What clicked for you at Watford, Marlon? Was it that you were getting played in down the middle in your in your preferred position? And the, the boys around you were giving you the service, or was it the um, chemistry? What, what clicked? I think it was Aidy Bruford. Um, he's a great friend, and he's like a father figure to me to this day. And um, it's funny that because when I was at Leeds, he was a first team coach, and he saw what I was doing in training, and he he. You know, obviously, he took it away with him because when he got the manager's job in the, the summer, he was one of the first clubs. Um, he was he was like, look, King, I've got the, the Watford job and I, I want you here with me and I want to play you in your position. So if you look at all the that season and all the signings he made, he signed a lot of players with a lot of like with points to prove that, you know, they came in there, chips on, um, chips on his um, shoulder. He brought in Clark Carlisle, he brought in Jay Demerit. Darius Henderson. I'll tell you a, I'll tell you a story, a quick story now. We had Ashley Young. He found Ashley Young. Well, I found Ashley Young, who's one of my best mates outside of football. Um, he was sitting in the change room as pretty much a trialist because Watford had released him and said, no, you can come in anyway because you live in Stevenage and, and just train with us. And AD found him like literally there and meaning clicked and the rest is history. He signed his pro contract. He signed another contract. Went to Villa. Went to Man United, and now he's he's at Inter. So, um, I'd say to the youngsters, if you get a knockback, use that as positive energy to go. Okay, it's just somebody's opinion. Never doubt yourself because there's a lot of players, Jamie, that you know, and of course you probably know that are in the lower league that are probably better than a lot of pro players, but they got so close. And then kind of maybe used it in a different way to kind of come out of football and say, no, the manager didn't like me. But you should never use that as an excuse. If you've got a belief in your ability and you believe in something, just keep going for it. Because you never know when yeah. the door's going to open, you know? Yeah, definitely. I suppose uh, what we were saying about, you know, about the self-doubt and um, it, I suppose for a lot of players, it is quite easy to maybe uh, just give up. But, but like you said there, um, if you have the mentality to keep going, uh, it's a very opinionated game, and uh, there's always going to be someone else that you you, you might impress. Yeah, it is. It's, it's, um, so it's it, totally about opinions, man. Yeah, definitely. I mean, then if we go on, uh, you know, a bit further on, uh, things just sort of get better and better for you at Watford. You bag 21 goals in the 05-06 season. Uh, you finish the championships top scorer. Uh, you then help Watford get promoted to the Premiership uh, and finish, you know, the club's player of the season. What was the feeling like when the full-time whistle, uh, full-time whistle went uh, at the Millennium Stadium? Um, it was it was brilliant. It was, and if you speak to any players that have been involved in the playoffs or been promoted, there's no more satisfying way of going up um, than the playoffs because it's almost like it's another mini season, and in everybody else's season, even worldwide, they've stopped. So you've got the two promoted teams, which credit to them they've gone up but they also tune in and they call you to ask you because you've got like fellow teammates ask you for tickets to come 
for just to be part of the atmosphere. And it's when you've got 80, 90,000 people there and everybody tuning in around the world. And then you know, like, that the prize money does so much for the club, the, the community of Watford. And we were, we were picked to go down because when when I joined and when a lot, a lot of players joined, we were picked to, we were re- relegation favourites because you had like Danny Weber who was on fire, you had like Heide Helgerson lead, you know, a lot of players. And, they, and I think only a few seasons before that they were in the Premiership. So it was a lot of doom and gloom. And then AD came in, he was an unknown quantity. And then the players he was bringing in were, were players that were in and around the game or, you know, and he just, man management skills. And even like when we, before we played against Leeds, um, he took us to the stadium to walk us around. You know, we watched um, a lot of videos of, you know, just to mentally and physically prepare us for such a stage because a lot of us hadn't been there before and it was just a masterstroke by him. And when we when we won it, it was just, you know, it changed so many people's lives and it, it's, it's a part of history that myself and a lot of the boys regardless of what they've gone on to do, won't forget. When watching that Watford side and, you know, looking back at some of the players that were in that side, you know, yourself, Young, uh, you had Boatza, um, you had some char- characters. So, Marlon, give us a little insight into what the party I, was like after. You know, obviously, all the, the, the wires and girlfriends were there and <laughs> it was it was a, such a togetherness. It, we were like a family. It wasn't even, you know, it, it wasn't even like, so like we there would be a, there was a nice um, Italian restaurant in Rublet and we'd all get together and eat. So the the, the party it was like a family get together. It was like a, a celebration of I don't know a christening or a wedding. It was because we was that close as a team. You know we had debriefs on Sunday. Um, Gaffer would get us in. He'd ask us our opinion, and nobody took offence to whether somebody had a good game, you know, we all got together and right down to the kit man, the groundsman, everybody was just in it together. And I think that was even the supporters. And it was just, it was just an amazing feeling, you know, and it was, you know, coming back to Watford and getting on the bus and celebrating and all all those thousands of people. It was was just something that I will never forget. And it's a club that I hold close to me, you know. I mean, you follow on uh, follow on the next season. Uh, you go up to the Premiership, obviously. Uh, you score in the second game of the season against West Ham, uh, and then unfortunately, the very next game, you get injured against Arsenal. How did you mentally deal with the injury uh, and to find out it was a six month setback? Do you feel you ever truly recovered from that injury? Um, to be honest, I think in terms of because I think we played Fulham, I scored, we played West Ham, so I was, I was fine with my feet, and I was starting to. Because, you know, when you test yourself up against a higher level, you always talk about playing in the Premiership. But I was I was getting the grip between my teeth. I was like, OK, no, I can do this. And I felt like I could, you know, sustain myself and what we could do a job as a team in, 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 in the Premier League. And unfortunately, I got, I got injured at um, the Emirates. And the injury was quite serious. It was, it was actually nine months. And then I had, you know, Dr... Uh, I had uh, uh, top surgeons tell me that you know um, this could be the end of my career because it was a it was like a, a just imagine having a scab on your on your bone and every time you run on it the scab just peeling away so it never healed and he's like you might need if you continue to play you might need a knee replacement so my my mindset was okay 
my wife's crying. I'm upset because you've just gone on such a high and then you hit such a low. It's like, okay, so I need to get myself together. Let me um, get fit. And unfortunately, I was out for the, pretty much the whole season. I think I came back the last few games, um, scored a few goals and then went into the championship. And then we started off on fire. I got myself fit. I was back. I was top goal scorer, I think, in the league. And we was about, I don't know if it was eight or nine points clear at the championship. And then, But always in the back of my mind, it was... It might be, you know, my my last game and the pain that I was going through. So when clubs came in for me for the Prem, it wasn't because I didn't leave Watford because, um, you know, I wasn't enjoying myself. I loved the club. It was just that I thought this might be my last opportunity to 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 to, to play in the Prem, you know, and the Championship very very demanding. It's it's you know you've got Saturday, Tuesday, and I was like, how long am I gonna you know, so that was always in the back of my mind in terms of like the decisions that I made going forward. And then obviously you had a, you had a, you know, you scored goals everywhere you went. You go to Wigan, you go to Hull, you go to Borough, Coventry, Birmingham, Sheffield United. One one of the funny moments of your career that is like a legendary moment in in the history of football. I want you to tell us, you know, when Phil Brown sits you down at the team <laughs> talk on the pitch. Um, as a player, Marlon, what's going through your head? Like personally, like even on grassroots level, if someone like did that to me and we were used to going to the dressing room at every half time I'd feel disrespected how were you feeling sat there could um, you even take him seriously you know what to be honest like it was a, it was a good journey with Paul because obviously they had just been promoted and the gaffer Phil Brown he drafted me in and it was good for each other but then I think it changed at that stage I think there was a lot of stuff going on I mean he was doing really really well he had I think he had interest from Newcastle and Sunderland and you could see it played a, an effect. So every result we're getting, it was like the punishment was becoming like more severe because it was affecting people's kind of like future plans in terms of what they projected themselves to be in. So I think after that annihilation of um, Man City, you know, to, we started walking towards the, in towards the change room and then we get called back, you know, the assistant manager, Phil Parkinson, he, he, he um, Parky calls us, he goes, no, come back, um, sit down on the field, Gaffin's on the field. So we thought, okay, what's going on here? And then we just get a right rollicking and then if you look at the pictures and you see my face um, and a few other boys' face, we, we didn't know where this came from and it happens in football. I think if you look at um, uh, Southampton, Taking a, a, a right bumping from Leicester, I'm sure they didn't sit out in the pitch after they were, I don't know, was it six, seven nil down at half time? Yeah, nine nil, wasn't it? It happens yeah. in football, and Total. you know we're at the, the Etihad, and you know you've got players like Robinho and all the superstars that they signed doing their thing. It was we didn't expect it, and I think after that things changed a lot. We had, a, we had a debrief. Um, debrief is when you have a meeting and you ask the manager voices his opinion, he asked the players his opinion and a few of the senior lads spoke up. Um, Georgie Botang and myself was like, yeah, we didn't feel that it was you know, right to do that. And then after that, we, we got dropped from the team. I think it was playing Arsenal, you know, and this is at a point where I was scoring goals. And because I said something and the other players said something, you know what it's like. If 
maybe the manager, you know, didn't like that we we, we, we spoke out and we got dropped and then just things just didn't, you know, didn't work out from there. And luckily, Hull stayed up. And I think it's a credit to yourself that you, you spoke up, you know. In any professional's life, if you take that into a general life of office culture, you know, if someone's going to get rollout in front of the whole office, um, you know, that staff member's not going to be happy. So what makes it okay for Phil Brown to do it on a football pitch in front of a packed Etihad? You know, it's a... Uh, uh, so Fair play to your voice Listen, and your opinion. We, we, we win as a team, we lose as a team, as far as I was concerned on a lot of boys. And even the, the people that didn't voice their opinion, they weren't, you know. It, it, and then you've got Bully, you've got Jimmy Bullard, he's, he's got the, the uh, uh, one of the most famous celebrations and I think it's brilliant. And, and he's the only yeah. guy that I know <laughs> that could have pulled that off. And it was, it was, it was, if you look at even the way, and just him scoring and it was just, you know, to make light of the situation because we don't hold grudges in football. That like, you know, and I wish everybody the best. But for him to do that and think about it and think it was, yeah, I think well, I think it was great banter to be honest. <laughs> yeah, no, that's brilliant. Uh, so, Marlon, we're going to move on to our quick fire round. We've got a round of questions here for yourself. We want one player's Is name. Is that okay, mate? We want one player's name from a round of questions. Um, for yourself, if we start with the biggest joker you've ever played with in football, the, oh, the biggest, the biggest joker. Uh, yeah, Jimmy Bullard. Jimmy, yeah, we see him on TV every Saturday. He, he, he still he makes the nation laugh, doesn't he? Coming on, even when I was at Gillingham, he came on trial and he just he, he didn't he didn't even get a contract there. I mean, the gaffer at that time didn't think he was good enough. I thought he was brilliant, and he's never he's always been how you see him on TV is exactly how he is. That's brilliant. Yeah, I'm, I'm assuming you had some great times with him. Um, who's the best player you ever played with, Model? Uh, I've got to go with my mate, Youngy. Actually, Young. Uh, striker's dream. Knows where you are and will get you extra five to ten goals a season because of his vision. He's had a great career, hasn't he? I'm a United fan, so yeah, big fan of Ashley's. Um, and the best player you ever played against, Model? Wow. Um, right. Is it just one that you want for me, or just one name of someone where you? Sharing the same pitch with them, and you're just in your head going, "Wow." Okay, I'll, I'll, I'm going to say, "Wow." Uh, right, I'm going to say this because I'm biased. I'm an Arsenal fan. I've got to say, Thierry Henry. Um, <laughs> just, yeah, just it was too easy for him to be honest. And he played in my my position, and just some player, yeah, isn't he? he? I don't have to say anything. He, and there's a few, but he stands out for me being like my position and playing for a team that I support up to this day. I've got to say, um, Thierry Henry. Worst trainer you've ever played with, Marlon? Controversial, this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm going to say, oh God, I can't. It's, it's bad. I, I, it's bad me saying this, but I'm going to say the worst trainer. <laughs> Is probably uh, Giovanni when I was at Hull. Yeah, I remember. Gio yeah, he had a he had a very good start to the season that year, but didn't he? When he he turned it on on a Saturday, that that's the thing. But like in training in Hull, he's from Brazil. Uh, warm weather, and he came to Hull. Didn't like training, but we saw what magic he could produce on a Saturday. So I've got I've got to say it's Gio and he's probably 
he's less likely to get back at me for saying that. So I'm trying to think of a long distance kind of teammate <laughs> who I'm not too close to. Yeah, I'll say Gio. Uh, um, well, I think I think the next one will get you as well, Marlon. Who's the biggest teacher's pet you've ever played with? Ooh. Gaffer's best mate. Ooh, Gaffer's best mate. There's been a few, you know. Now he, oh, you really got me on this one because I still speak to quite a few of them. Uh, Ian Ashby <laughs> again at Hull. I'm going to say that. I'm going to say Ash. I'm going to say um, Ian Ashby. He was a captain of Hull. Him and Phil Brown were like um, Bill and Ben. So, yeah, Ian Ashby. The, the worst dancer. Worst dancer. Does it have to be a teammate? No, it doesn't have to be someone, a footballer no, you've okay, seen. I'm, no, I'm, 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 no, I'm going to chuck a manager in there. Well. I'm going to say A.D. Boothroyd at my wedding. <laughs> I've got the video footage and if he wants to disagree <laughs> with me, he, he, can, he can more than do so. But the worst dancer, he had his tie around his head. You know, you're playing R and B music, and it was—I don't know. Maybe you had headphones on at the time. I'm not too sure. So I'd say AD Boothroyd, worst dancer ever. We look forward to seeing that one, Marlon. Send it in. We'll get it. If we'll no, get I it on the socials. <laughs> no, that's fine. Um, the best captain you ever uh, played under, mate. Captain. Uh, uh, probably I'd say. I've got to say probably Stevie Carr. At Birmingham, yeah, true professional, fit as they come. Obviously Irish, so he's got that balance of being serious but knowing how to be a lad. Um, there's been others, but I'm I'm trying to go off the top of my head. Yeah, I'll say Stevie Carr. Right, and the final one, Marlon, your most memorable night out after a game. Uh, I'm gonna say I'm gonna say the playoff final. I'm going to say that everybody had a blast. All the wives, everyone was there. It was just, it was a surreal moment. And yeah, I'll, I'll say that. Great stuff. Some really good answers there, Marlon. Um, so I mean, if we if we then move on, um, which was probably uh, quite, quite a tough time in your career um, and a bit of a personal issue you had in your career. Um, when you came out of prison, uh, there was, was there an ambition to get back into the game? And just how hard was it to find a new club? Um, I'll, be, I'll be totally honest with you. Um, I've always... Because of my career and because of my, my kind of trials and tribulations, I've always been close to not being able to have football in me. So always knew in the back of my head that I had to work as, as, as hard and, and, and knuckle down and try and put things right. Not just for me, but for my family. And I don't know, it was, you know, even in even when I was in prison, I was still training like a, a madman. You know, people look at me doing sort of thing you know kind of over but in my head that was you know when when I had my back against the wall when I you know when I was I found myself in a situation I never thought for one moment that regardless of whether I was going to play football or whether I was going to go on to do something else I never thought that that was the end of my life and I've always bear that in mind that life is bigger than football and I think that's a pro and a con in a sense of even when I was dealing with managers or I was getting myself into problems, I never thought that if I lost football, then I was going to be down and out. And, uh, it's a good mentality to have that, Marlon, to really push yourself on. And then 
a key part of this podcast is you know helping people deal with mental health so you know as people know the press have their favorites that they like to write about and unfortunately at that tough time in your career Marlon you know you were in and out of the news and the media how do you mentally deal with the constant pressure of the press and public and did you have any support systems that you're really thankful for to this day? My wife Julie uh, we've been together 20 years and uh, I think without her you know I grew up in a home a broken home mum and dad fighting and arguing all the time I moved out when I was 14 Got my own place when I was 16, bought my own place when I was 17. So it was it was a case of, um, you know, trying to find a balance because I always had a self-destruct. I was one of those kids that, you know, I don't know, at school, if you had that big red alarm button with the casing over it, says, yeah. don't press. I was always one of the kids to go and press that button. And it was the kind of mirror of my life sort of thing, you know, it's... I didn't. I didn't see myself as a celebrity. I didn't. I didn't know how to separate um, being a little uh, estate kid to understanding what was happening to me and, and, and separating the two and, and shutting off. And that was probably why it wasn't so much ability wise. It was probably mentally wise. I didn't know how to like take myself away from um, potential pitfalls and downfalls I was even when I was going to I was at Forest I was driving back down to London to you know if you've got your friends saying to you are oh, you change and you kind of want to keep it real as I said I always say I don't know what keeping it real is when I think about it now being 40 years old and happy and it's like such stupid errors and what I could say to youngsters and anybody in any walk of life like just be mindful sometimes be selfish in what you want to achieve and you're going to have to make sacrifices you know, you're going to have to shut off certain people that might potentially draft you into positions or you might have to say no to go into certain places just to get to the top. And and I didn't I didn't know how to do that because I didn't have that kind of figure in my life to, to make me understand. I was always my own person. So I always found myself in a pickle because either my voice was too loud or getting myself into problems that even if I did, I thought there was a way out. And it's not the right way to go you know and i built up a lot of um how can i put it? I, put, I built up a lot of like anger and um i'm okay kind of mentality that sort of ego um without speaking about and releasing kind of um you know mental pressure and it's it's huge and, and this is why i'm on instagram this is why i'm doing these interviews it ain't for instagram followers it ain't to be liked or approved by anyone because where I'm at in life now, I'm, I'm very, very comfortable. I'm, I'm comfortable with my own skin and I'm, I'm an open book. So you're going to get people that might judge me through what they've seen and read, which is understandable, but I'm not here for those, those, people, those people's approval. I'm more here to reach out to youngsters that might find themselves or potentially will find themselves in a position um, not knowing the downfalls and not be so fortunate to, to have a network or get the opportunity to, to come back and turn their life around. So mental issue, I, I saw Bellamy talking about depression. I'm all for that. I think whether you're suffering from mental depression, gambling addiction, whether you, you, you know, sexuality problems, come out and speak about it. Because now with Instagram, there's a platform. Didn't have that when I was when I was playing football because if there's a story that comes out of you, 
right, that's it, it's stuck forever. And a player never really gets his chance to to um, explain or to apologise. We, we never had that platform. And I look at Instagram now and I'm like, wow, this is a, you know, perfect for people to come and be open and make sure. Because there's so many people that are in similar positions that everybody's guarded because they think it's it's not the thing to do. It's not the thing to, to come out and talk about your problems and your downfalls and you don't realise how many people you're touching by just being honest and open, you know? Yeah, I get that. And I think it's a great motive to have, you know, now you've retired, to really go and uh, help the young people. It moves on to our next point. As we know, you know, South London, where you're from, there's you get some real raw talent. And what's the best bit of advice now that you can give to young players who may let their environment interrupt their football? That's a good question. One, I don't, I'll tell my story, but I'll never make, that story being an excuse for any wrongdoings, you know, I've always taken full, I take full responsibility, especially now as a 40 year old with, you know, grown kids and and a family of my own. Um, where I'm from, I'm just a product of my environment, but there's other people that have come from, you know, poverty and stuff and gone on to stay out of trouble and, and have a, a calm, cool career. And I just wasn't. You know, I just wasn't one of those kids. And my advice would be to not just people that want to play football, but anyone that's, whether you want to be a rapper or a singer, and, you know, use it for what you can. And most importantly, know your circle. Know when to switch off. Know when to go, okay, no, that's, that's not the right place for me to be. That, and you'll have longevity, man. And, and a fight, not just a criminal kind of, Term. I'm talking about a financial term as well, like pay attention to yourself, invest in yourself, understand that you know about what, you know, if you get a car out of finance, what, what an APR is, how much interest you're paying, what a, a, a finance settlement figure is, you know, um, you know, what, what even if you're getting a mortgage, what interest only is, what repayment um, terms are, you know. Find out about bonds. If you've got a financial advisor coming around asking to invest thousands of pounds of your hard work money, ask questions. Has he got money invested into the same product he wants you to put money into? All of these things you've got to question because I'll tell you this now, Jamie and Kush, there's a lot of players that have had much better careers than me. And it's you know, it's public knowledge. I don't need to name names. I've got a lot of friends that have had great careers, learned loads of money, and they've hit a brick wall because they didn't take time out to invest in themselves. And it was kind of like a lazy mentality to go, no, my agent will do it. My financial advisor does it. Well, you are your best financial advisor, I'll say to these young people. You know, invest into people that are investing into you, not just to use you for their gain. It works both ways. You know, if, you, if you're signing a contract, make sure everything that's in there you understand what you're signing up to. You know, I've had instances where you agree a contract and then when you sign it with a manager and you're doing the press conference, then there's another form slipped in. So you sign that and then you come to your end of your contract and you're not getting the, the money you're supposed to. And you're like, well, you signed this. And you're like, well, that wasn't there. But how do you check that? How do you double check it in front of the media? These are all things that are happening now and there's loads of pros I'm sure you'll talk to or people in life that have been stung just because they didn't read the, the, the final deal detail. And that's that's one of my, yeah. my main kind of 
you know, it doesn't matter who you are. If you're starting a company, you need to know like what's the worst case scenario, what's the pros, what's the cons, what's the, the you know the economy. If you're buying a property, what's it going to be valued at in five years? You know all these things. Invest into into um into yourself. So that, that's the best advice I can really kind of give. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that's some really valuable uh, advice for any sort of young young players or, or young listeners in football. Um, so I think hopefully they can take something from that there, Marlon. Yeah. Um, but if we move on, if we move on now to your, your life after football and um, sort of the business side of things, um, you, you're currently uh, living in Zambia, uh, a successful commercial property developer. Tell us more about firstly why you moved to Zambia, and secondly, what does a day in the life of Marlon King currently look like? Okay. Um, well, basically, look, I. I've always, as much as people want to be judgmental towards me in terms of whatever they've read about me, but I've always been quite switched on in terms of taking care of my family financially. And, um, my wife was born in Zambia. She moved to the UK when she was about 10. and I met her when she was 17. We've been together, you know, right up to this day. And we've, I've always had my eye on on Africa because she's always told me there's opportunities and obviously her parents have got businesses here and stuff so that was always something in the back of my mind so we already put in place to kind of shift to Zambia when um, I finished football um, and just sort of seeing how the way UK was going in terms of you know knife crime gun crime I could probably survive it because I grew up in the jungle, but my kids that grew up, you know, in the countryside with horses and stuff, they they're not they're not prepared for that world. So for me, when I first went to Zambia, it was peaceful, you know, it was calm, it was great investment opportunities, and it, it just it was just a no-brainer. And obviously, sunshine all year round. Um, it just made sense for me and my wife. We speak the language, and um, you know. It, We've always invested in, we've got properties in the UK, you know, here and other countries. We've always taken our time out to make sure that when I do finish my career, that we'll be able to subsidise our lifestyle afterwards. So, and then a, a lot of people are quite surprised because, you know, if, even for me, if I was to pick up the newspaper and I, and I read about, you know, the trials and tribulations of my career, I'd think, oh, well, there's only one kind of ending to the story. But for me, it was totally different. I didn't, I was never hidden away from anything, but I just knuckled down. And I always wanted a career outside of football. I didn't want to be a coach. I've never aspired to be a manager. And it's not for, for not loving the game. It's just I always wanted to test myself for something else. So I decided to, you know, invest my, my money in real estate my own construction company and um that's where i am today so if you talk about in terms of a, a daily uh kind of lifestyle for me um it's i'm up five o'clock in the morning um feed all my animals because we live on a, a 200 acre farm um get, well when the kids were at school obviously they're not at school at the moment because due to this whole COVID situation, um, get them ready for school. Yeah. Um, and then uh, start the, you know, go to the office, open up the office, um, get contracts, make sure all the, 
everything's in place. Um, and where I am, where I the way the way I live, because I'm, I'm my own boss, I can you know pop home because um, the kids finish school at maybe one o'clock. And we might have a braai, have a swim, and no, it's 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 a it's a it's a different kind of lifestyle towards um, what I was used to in the UK. No, of course. And Marlon, are you sort of pushing your children um, into, you know, an entrepreneur mindset or do they want to go into sports and the football industry or have they sort of shown any signs where they want to go? Um, well, my daughter's big into fashion. Um, my youngest daughter is just, she likes shopping, so she likes spending money, um, as women do. <laughs> and um, my son, he's, he's big on technology and computers, so... And they're all. I make sure we 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 work out in the gym four or five times a week. We do up to an hour, and the kids and the wife's with me, and we go on farm. We go on like farm runs, five k runs. We get in the gym, we work out together. So we're quite a family unit. And I just want them to be the best at whatever um, they choose or decide um, to pursue because. I know what it's like to have pressure put on you to, to do something. So, and you know, when you've got too much pressure added to you, everybody's mentally different. Everybody's got a different character. Some people crumble under pressure. Some people thrive on it. And with my children, I just, if it's fashion or whether it's technology they want to, to get involved in with computers or I'm behind them 110%. And I just, my advice to them is just make sure you, you're willing to, to give it your rule and you don't have any regrets. So, I mean, that's the only advice I can give them as a parent because I wouldn't want to push my son into football when he doesn't really like football. And then for him to get to 18 or 21 and turn around and say, well, Dad, you know, I told you I didn't want to do it. So just because I play football yeah. doesn't mean that my son has to play football. You know, if he wants to do it, you know, I've got the network and the exposure to kind of showing certain things that it's just something that he's never taken interest in. And I suppose with this social media and these computers, to me growing up, all I had was a ball. You know, there wasn't many computer games to be playing that old, but if you know what I mean, it wasn't Instagram and Twitter where your, your, your mind's kind of turned from sports, so to speak. It was just either football or basketball, or if you wanted to be, you know, it, that's what it was when I was growing up. The generation playing changed now. So it would be wrong for me to, to, to push my son into something that he doesn't want to do or my or my daughters. So I just I just want I just want, I want to grow him up as a gentleman and and my two daughters as, you know, the, the best well mannered children I can and, and show them whatever I can show them. I think that's them. a I think that's a really, really positive outlook. You've got there, Marlon. I mean, the final question for you today, and I just want to touch on it. If no one's actually listened to you speak before and, you know, they might have read the press in the past, you know, from what you said today, Marlon, you know, you, you've got some incredible knowledge and, you know, you're really living life properly. You're doing the right things um, in business and in life after football. My final question for you is you said, obviously, you, you were very independent growing up on when you were young, getting into football. Where does all this entrepreneurship, self-development uh, knowledge come from? Is it something you've worked on throughout your career, Marlon? Listen, I was doing a paper round on the estate when I was nine years old. Um, even when I signed a pro contract for Barnet, um, I think I, it, 
it must have been about £350 a week. All my friends were going, I and Africa and America, I couldn't afford to because I bought my first place. And, you know, I, I had to, I had bills to pay, so I got myself a job. And this is me being a pro in the third division, you know. So I've always been, I've always, I don't know, I think when you're, when you, what I see and what I've experienced is that when you are closer to reality, so to speak, and that's no disrespect to any top, top premiership players, when you're outside of that kind of bubble and you're trying to, you always have to put, because you're not earning £100,000 a week, you, you have to think about the reality of getting a trade or, you know, grafting somewhat. So because I came up through the non-league and lower league kind of setup, and I'm sure if you, you'll find, you'll find a lot of players that came up that way are more stable mentally and financially than those guys that have top careers who might find themselves that have hit a brick wall because you get caught up in a bubble. And if you sign up, if you're clearing 100 and 150 grand a week, um, you never, and you sign a five year contract, you never think it's going to come to an end. So you can find yourself spending more recklessly. You can make him trust in more people because it's like, oh, I don't need to do stuff myself because I can I can afford to employ somebody. And then what happens is, as your career slows down, your your income shrinks, but your outgoings remain the same. And then nobody sat you down to say, well, you know what, X Y Z, you've not put your house on repayment. Even when I had one of my prison sentences. I was paying 30 grand a month on repayment to pay off my, my mortgage. It was a five-year mortgage and I, and I cleared it in less than two years because I knew that why I had the capacity to earn that sort of money, I had to capitalise on it. Whereas you find guys that earn a lot of, lot of money that have not had that experience of being close to not having football or not having the funds to secure a long-term future. You find that they're more they're more financially stable, and that's my message to a lot of young players that find money fast. Just make sure that you finish training at one o'clock. Jump on right move. Get your missus to go on Zoopla. Have a look at you know. Even in two thousand and eight, I, I bought a load of repos when we hit the recession because I thought, well, I'm I'm one of the lucky few to be able to capitalize on not being affected by the state of the economy, and then. You know, we, we benefited massively from our property portfolio that we, when we had that financial kind of income, we didn't go Vegas and blow 100, 200 grand. You know, some of the stories I could tell you are ridiculous. So I've always been close to the ground. And I think, yes, it was, an, it was a negative mean getting into so much trouble, but it always kind of, in a weird way, kept me closer to reality to say, no, I've got to put away for a rainy day because I'm going through this. So. Just me growing up as a kid, you know, I, I wasn't privileged. There was six of us. We, we lived on a state and I had to navigate my way out. And as I said, you, you'll find a lot of players that have had great successful careers that shouldn't find themselves in a position that they, for whatever reason they are in now. It's not criminal, but it is criminal in terms of you earning so much money and finding yourself with nothing in the bank. And that's just not paying attention to the final detail and taking out time to invest um, wisely for you and your family because you've entrusted so many people that are there 
to gain off you instead of helping you. Uh, you've definitely given uh, me a, a really good outlook and a different outlook on the life after football. Uh, and you've given some really useful advice for, for any young listeners out there. Um, unfortunately, that's all we've got time for today. But you've been an absolute pleasure. No so problem, thank you Jamie, for coming no on the problem, show, Mike. Any, any, any time. Um, listen, I'm an open book, as I said. Not a lot of people understand my story. I'm not, I'm not here for approval. It's just my kids, my wife have encouraged me, look, you've got a story to tell, you can help others. And that's why I'm in it, because I'm not a social media kind of guy. And this is all new to me. But if I can touch one person and help them in a positive way, I'm all for it. Thank you very much for listening to this podcast. This is brought to you by Your Lead Machine and Deepest. We look forward to you joining us for our next episode. If you have any questions for us or things you'd like to know about the afterlife of a footballer, please let us know by dropping us a message on Instagram. If you enjoy this podcast, please hit like, share and subscribe. And if there's a guest you'd like us to get on the show, please let us know.